we'll let all the kids get out of the room today because we're going to talk about sex. I have everybody's attention now. You know, they teach you in class in preaching school that you're, oh, Chandler, oh, no. That's a great way to get them to go to children's church, isn't it? They always teach you when you are in school to give an introduction that will hook people when they first listen. So you've got to get them to pay attention. In today's world, it's twice as hard, by the way, because our attention span has dropped from about 11 to 10 minutes to about 3 to 4. Can you believe that? That means every 3 to 4 minutes, your mind goes in another direction. And so they teach you in public speaking to tell jokes, show videos, break up a train of thought. But in church, it's so hard to do that. So we just have to lay it out there, and you have to get what you can get because I'm not into that, but I do see value in it from teaching, so please don't think I'm saying that's a bad method. But one of the great things about this is you can always go back, and you can have video. You can go back and relook and... uh, listen to the message again, but today's message is a little difficult, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I tried to skip this two or three times, but we're in a series on spiritual warfare, and I told you, David, is my message not pulling up again? We're in a series, I'm in, I'm in warfare here with this uh, computer, but the subject today is vice number three. Now, remember, I started this a long time ago, weeks and weeks ago, Back in the book of Ephesians, we started talking about spiritual warfare. And it's not always what we think, by the way. Satan is a very strategic, you all had better hear me, very strategic, very clever deceiver. Jesus said he is a liar and a deceiver and a murderer, and he starts at the very beginning. And I've tried to pound this, pound it, pound it. Satan takes what is absolutely normal in our life. We do have the normal emotion of anger. He takes that and he doesn't allow us to deal with it properly. And he takes that anger and turns it into bitterness, which turns it into rage, which turns it into hate. And then our spiritual life is destroyed. Last week we talked about for unforgiveness. He will take an offense that someone did against us or to us And he'll let it fester in our life. And he'll stoke the fire of, well, I don't have to forgive them. And the next thing you know, you don't want to pray. You don't want to read your Bible. And you don't want to come to church. Now, hear me. If you don't want to pray, and you don't want to read your Bible, and you don't want to come to church as a believer, he has already overtaken. And if you don't believe me, read God's Word. That's what we're trying to share with you. That is spiritual warfare. People think that spiritual warfare is where we see demons and we hear things and we have all these uh, supernatural things happen. No, no, no. It is the everyday attacks in life that are not dealt with the way God tells us to deal with them. Now today we're going to talk about sexual temptation. How many people that knew, did not know this is an issue of spiritual warfare? Well... It's rather interesting, when I started developing this study and tracing all these things out, I learned a lot. As a matter of fact, I learned this when I've read over it multiple times, but I never put it in the context of spiritual warfare. 
But this is why I say oftentimes Christians don't see issues such as anger, unforgiveness, our issue today, sexual temptation, and physical infirmities. That's what I'm talking about next week. Paul said that physical infirmities can be used as spiritual warfare against you, things that happen to you. However, we're going to discover these are actually vices that the enemy uses to do what? Not take our salvation away. He can't do that. But he uses them to defeat us spiritually, to cause us not to pray, to cause us not to witness, to cause us not to want to be in fellowship and be around other believers. We'd rather isolate and feel for ourselves and call it whatever we want to. And then we are destroyed. Now, the text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. So if you have a Bible, you need to turn there because I'm not just going to preach this one verse. I'm going to go through this whole section and go back in chapter 6 and tie in something for singles here too. I'm not just preaching to married people. I'm preaching to singles as well. So we've got a lot for you too. Now, this whole section in 1 Corinthians, if you ever read this book, and I do have plans to preach through it, 1 Corinthians is a... Spanking. Paul goes into this church. It's so funny if you've ever read this letter in detail. There's 16 chapters in it. Paul goes in this book right off the get-go and says, I thank God you're so wise. We're so grateful for you. And then he goes right down to the issue. I hear that there are divisions among you. I hear that you're puffed up and taking sides and choosing leaders. Then he goes into the fact that they're, they're carnal. He goes into the issue of them having immorality in their church. And guess what they did? They invited the pride movement to come in. They celebrated this guy. Paul said, what are you doing? What are you doing as a Christian? You don't celebrate that. You address it and you deal with it as wrong. You kick the man out. Kick him out. Now, that's not nice, is it, today? We, we can't talk like that or we'll get what? Canceled. Well, cancel us. I don't mean that to be negative. I'm just saying. God said there is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And he told the Corinthians, chapter 5, if you don't believe me, he says, you're celebrating that. Don't do that. By the way, the new headline come out. Did you all hear this? Now there's a new movement for polyamory. What is polyamory? It's been going on for a long time, but it came out in Al Mohler's briefing this past week. It's where one person can now have legal ramifications with multiple partners in the house. could be one, wo one woman with three men or one man with three women. And now that's in the big movement to get legally so that insurance and everything else covers that. So see what happens when you destroy the foundation of marriage. You see what happens? Wow. Here we are. But Paul addresses this issue in chapter 5. Now he gets in chapter 6. And he's going to start talking about immorality in the church. Now I have to build and work my way up to this. This is tough, but here's the problem. Churches don't talk about these issues. Do you know that I read some research this past week that the divorce rates in the church are as high as they are anywhere else? Did you know that I discovered, this is new research by the way, that the highest denomination for divorce rates is, somebody said it, Baptists. 
It is the highest denomination for divorce rates. Why do you think that is? You ever, you ever thought out here, now I could go off on a rabbit trail. I'm not on a rabbit trail. I'm just simply here to tell you that is a huge issue. And what we're going to talk about today is a large part of why this is an issue. People do not get this in premarital counseling because pastors are either too embarrassed to talk about it or they just won't bring it up. And it's never preached from the pulpit because people are afraid to say this. But this is God's Word, and we need to know this. And if we don't, we're going to have issues in our life and in our marriage. So I'm going to go back to chapter 6 in just a few moments, but I want to address this issue and show you how this is spiritual warfare. I'm in chapter 7, verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Are you looking down in your text? Because here's what happened. He addressed issues all the way up to chapter 6. When he gets in chapter 7, verse 1, he starts addressing questions. Now, if you have an ink pen, write these down. I'm going to give them to you. I didn't put them on the screen. But Paul answers questions throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. I always chuckle as a professor at people try to build doctrine, uh, build their, their uh, how they try to prove their points from 1 Corinthians, saying, well, here's what Paul... Listen to this. In chapter 7, verse 1, he addresses a question. In chapter 7, verse 25, he addresses a question. In chapter 8, verse 1, he addresses a question. In chapter 12, verse 1, he addresses a question. And in chapter 16, verse 1, he addresses a question. So the rest of the book, we're going to hear a one-sided telephone call. Okay? If you read commentators, they're going to come in here and they're going to go, well, now the Corinthians should... They, they probably said this, or they said that, or they said that. We don't know everything they said. But we do know what Paul answered. And we can somehow fill in the blank. So watch what happens. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and this is what they wrote to him, they wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, somebody in Corinth said, Paul, we are now super spiritual. And we know about the problem of asceticism. In other words, denying the flesh. And now we realize that the superior spiritual life is when we don't do that dirty thing called sex. And we know that it's good, they say, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that's the end of their quote. Paul has taken their quote. Now, I wish, oh boy, I wish we could have some feedback here. You, are you all uncomfortable when you're talking about this? You should be up here. <laughs> Looking at all your faces. Nobody's asleep this morning, by the way. <laughs> Rather, maybe I should start talking about this all the time. But look, look what he says, verse 2. Paul says, but that was your, that was your statement, that it's good for that not to happen. Now, now Paul's going to talk, but... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And by the way, they're singular here. Did you know that? There is sexual temptation. And by the way, listen closely, every person has a different degree of sexual temptation. 
There are some people who have the grace of celibacy. What does that mean? That means that they really have no desire to fulfill sexual desires. It's just not there. They, they could just really care less. And sometimes married people try to throw their married feelings on single people. And Paul's going to go on through the rest of this chapter. And when I preach this book, I'll deal with it. He's going to say this. Everybody's not like you. And as a matter of fact, if I had my way, everybody would stay single as a believer. That way they could serve God and not have to get caught up in all the bondage. But I know everybody's not like that. So don't be casting that guilt on everybody. Because it's not made for everybody to be married. Now, by the way, Paul had a different view of being single than we do. Paul's concept of being single was so that you could devote your time and your life and your energy to serving Jesus. We talk about being single because we don't want nobody telling us what to do. We don't want to spend our money on anybody else except ourselves, And we want to do it our way. Now, some people, I should say, that's kind of the American thought, the Western thought. Well, we'll just be single, and that way, you know what? We're not obligated to anybody. We're not tied down, and if we want to go somewhere else with somebody else, we can do that. That was not what Paul meant by being single. What he meant was you have no tie-ups. You have nothing that holds you down, and Paul said, you know what? That's good. But he's addressing a certain circumstance here in Corinth. Verse 3, notice what he says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That's how the ESV translates it. I am not going to, to explain that to you. I have a feeling that you understand what I mean. He is to give to her her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now notice how balanced the Bible is here. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. Now, by the way, this is first century, male-dominated, male-dominated culture. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul stepping in saying, by the way, husbands, your wife has the authority over your body when it comes to this issue. And if she, if she shares a desire, then guess what your responsibility is as a husband? Submit to her. And most men are like, fine, yeah, no problem at all. But believe it or not, listen to me, there are problems with this in marital counseling. And by the way, if you've ever been in marital counseling, you understand this. I have actually counseled people who have went years upon years. I think the longest I, I had heard was 15 years. 15 years they had been married. And there was so much hatred and bitterness between them, there was no conjugal rights. Either way. And then that led into immorality from one of the members. And then, here, here's the deal now, and I can just share this. One of the people, and I won't say who it was, because I don't know who listens or shares my videos, but one of the people said that the other person had went out and been unfaithful. And so when I asked the question, well, when was the last? And they said 15 years ago. I said, how can that be? Well, because I'm just not. 
And so my, my follow-back question was, was, then how do you expect them to deal with that? Well, that's their problem. You see what happens here? And down the road we go. Paul says, in a healthy Christian marriage, it's not your body, it's your partner's body. And you, as a loving, caring person, need to be sensitive to that. And you need to submit yourself to the authority of the other when they make this request. Look in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer or service or something like that, but then come together again. You ready for our text here? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Underscore that in your Bible or in your mind. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, here's the issue of the concept of spiritual warfare. Conjunal rights can be denied, but if they are, Paul says it's for a specific purpose. It's devotion of your life to a certain matter in which doing that or getting involved in that is going to impact your life or your ministry. For example, you're fasting and you're praying for somebody, then this could absolutely change your train of thought. But if you're going to do that and you have a reason to do that, he says you need to sit down and communicate with each other as to how you're going to abstain and for how long so that you don't go on in desire that is unfulfilled. Because if you do, what does he say could happen? You could enter into spiritual warfare. And guess what happens when people don't have their temptations in marriage met? And by the way, are you all hearing me? This is married people. Paul is talking to married people here. This is what married people are supposed to talk about and agree about. Most couples spend less than a few minutes a year, by the way, I don't care if you've been married 30 years, talking about your conjugal life. We just don't talk about it. Because we, we think, oh my goodness, we shouldn't talk about something like that. Yes, you should. Yeah, you should. And you should be thankful for it. And all the men said, now I got three, okay. <laughs> and the rest of them were going, well, I sure would have liked to. <laughs> but it's the truth. It is the truth. We don't talk about that. But nevertheless, they think about it all the time. I can remember sitting in a Freudian psychology class. I, I was inundated with psychology in my undergrad, not at the Bible college, but I would sit there and listen to this Freudian study. If you've ever sto- studied Freud or the other psychologists, they talk about sexual frustration. And I don't want to get into all this, but the point is, is when certain demands and needs aren't met, it turns you into a monster. And by the way, if you don't understand this about the human nature, you know, sometimes men will feel like their wife has denied them, and guess what they'll do? They'll pout. And they'll go, well, I'll tell you what, if that's the way she's going to do it, I'll tell you what I'll do. I won't. She didn't want to, I won't. And it'll go on for days, and and I'll, I'll make her ask. If she doesn't ask, I won't. And on and on it goes. Now listen to me, because I am talking to you as your pastor. This is how marital separation starts. And then all of a sudden, one of the partners says, well, they don't even like me. 
The man says, they don't want to submit. The woman says, he doesn't find me attractive. You know, he, he doesn't even pursue me. So if he doesn't pursue me, he doesn't think I'm attractive. And then so she'll go, okay, then I'm not going to do this. And she'll go off in her corner and he'll go over and go, she's denying me and acts like she doesn't. And then he'll go off in his corner and listen to what happens. He starts looking at things he shouldn't. And then his mind gets enamorated on him. And then he starts thinking about carrying out his desires. And the next thing you know, you have infidelity. And then the wife is off at work. And one of the co-workers walks by and says, Hey, you look nice today. And she says, Oh, a man that's going to pay attention to me. He thinks I'm sexy and attractive. And then what does she do? She starts liking that. And then she starts telling him her problems. And the next thing you know... There you have marital infidelity. Men are attracted mostly through the eye gate. Women are attracted mostly through the emotional gate. But there's a mixture of both in there. The needs versus sight. And by the way, folks, that is how it starts. And right here's the issue. Now, I've been about as clear as I can possibly be with you today. Question and answer time? No. (laughs) That's what Paul did, by the way. He was answering questions here. He says... So do not deprive each other. Now, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7, which I didn't put on the screen, because he he does write this in the same place. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, to the unmarried, okay? So maybe you're here and you're not married. You say, okay, well... What, what does God have to say to me? Okay, I'm going to share it with you. To the unmarried and the widows. So he lumps two together here. Unmarried and widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Okay? Now, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, how do you know whether or not you are meant to be married? Well, here's one of the tests. Is your life consumed and dominated with temptation? If it is, guess what? That is a pretty good indication that your, your makeup and your call in life is to find a husband or a wife. And you are to pursue that. Now, some commentators, by the way, write into 1 Corinthians and say that during this time there was a, something going on that was really hard in this area. And they said that some people had proposed to be married, and now some people were not going to carry through with the marriage because they thought that they couldn't provide and all this. Paul goes on later in this and says, Listen, if you have betrothed and you have decided to get married and set a date, and you feel like that's what God wants you to do, then you do it. Because it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying everybody should be single, he says. It would be more advantageous for you in that circumstance. But I'm not saying it's the only thing. So do it, he says. So this is kind of the pastoral counseling. Now, when the church responded to Paul with answers and questions, they did it saying they had superior wisdom. And so Paul goes and he begins to address this superior wisdom issue. I want you to look back in chapter 6. I hope you brought a Bible. In verse 12, because now we're going to talk about immorality in the church. And by the way, did you know there is such thing as immorality in the church? Uh, I have pastored in churches 
where people have been living immoral lives unbeknownst to us. Men who were sleeping with other women. Women who were sleeping with other men. And sometimes it goes hidden. Sometimes it's not seen. Can I share something with you as your pastor today? If you're doing that, number one, stop it. And number two, come clean. Because your life is being destroyed right in front of you. And if you're carrying on, and you're, if you're married and you're carrying on these little secret chats on Facebook and you're creating draft emails in Gmail and, and signing up an account with somebody else, and both of you have passwords and names and you're only keeping your flirty emails in drafts so nobody can ever catch you. Stop that. Stop that. You're destroying your marriage and your life and your testimony and your relationship with Jesus. Don't do that. It's not right. And come clean and get help. Get help. Don't try to do it yourself. You know, most of the time when people get caught in sin, they're so ashamed to come out and say, I did this, that they just live in isolation and bondage the rest of their life, and they absolutely destroy their Christian life. Destroy their testimony is gone. No fervor for God. No fervor for Christ. And they have to just go through the motions. What a miserable life. What a miserable life. Don't live in immorality. Now notice what Paul says in verse 12. This is what the Corinthians said. You ready for this? They said, quote, All things are lawful for me. I'm free willy here. All things are lawful. Now notice what Paul says. Yeah. Yeah, but not all things are helpful. They must have said this several times in their letter. He repeats it again. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, yeah, yeah, but I will not be enslaved by anything. It might be lawful to you, but it can also be enslaving. Verse 12, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. This is what the Corinthians wrote to him. So apparently there was an issue here about eating something that was defiled. Now, by the way, you know, we are a community church, Baptistic. We don't have regulations on eating. We don't say that there's nothing you can't eat. We're not Jewish. We're not Seventh-day Adventist. We believe you can eat a good piece of bacon and sausage. Beth, you did a good job this morning. We believe that pork is clean. Everything's clean. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, if you can pray over it, you can eat it. I don't care what it is. Whatever your imagination is. Also, as a church, we understand, and listen to me closely here, I'm not trying to be crazy, that the Bible does not forbid alcohol. It forbids drunkenness. So don't go off on a tangent somewhere and say, Oh my goodness, the preacher said... The Bible does not forbid alcohol. Now, it says you better be cautious because some people that drink it can turn into drunkards, but it doesn't forbid it. And Jesus did not turn water into Pepsi. If I was in a Baptist church, I would have to say that. But he turned water into wine, and the guy who tested it said it's the best wine he'd ever tasted in his life, and I doubt it was Welch's grape juice. Now, let me just stop right there and say, that's just what it is. If we can pray over it, we can eat it, but you better be careful. Because Paul says this, 
I may be able to drink it, but Paul says, yeah, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be enslaved to it. You're going to be enslaved to it. And so I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you can. And you're going to be enslaved to it. If you can't control yourself, don't do it. Don't do it. Because you'll ruin your testimony and you'll ruin everything else. Now notice what Paul says. The body is not meant... Oh, let me go back up in my phrase. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul answers, yes, that's true. And God's going to destroy both. One and then the other. So at the end of that, what's your life going to be? When God destroys the food and he destroys the drink, is your life going to be that you're a drunkard or you're a glutton or you're a whatever? Now notice what he says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now he was leading up to something here because he was about ready to hit on an issue of sexual immorality. It is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord was meant for the body. Verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So, listen to what he's saying. Don't go out and and do things in your body, because one day you're going to be resurrected. And you especially better watch your sexual life. I'm going to show you why in just a minute. People do not talk about this. Do you realize that sexual sin is one sin that you can never reverse? It is a sin that has, has shame attached to it. Now watch. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's talking to Christians. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I mean, is it alright for me just to go out here and Live like the animal world. If it feels good, do it. YOLO, you know, I mean, you know. Whatever. I tell you, Karen and I were walking through downtown Blacksburg a while back, I won't say where, near the Virginia Tech campus, but we looked over to the left and man, there was a party going on. My heart broke. Hundreds of young people. And the beginning of immorality, it, it was sickening to me. Because here is what I'm doing, you know, as a dad. All these young daughters that are going off with all these jock boys. Over there drinking. Getting their selves inebriated. Losing all rational judgment of self. To have a good time. And you know what the answer is? Hey, everybody does it. Everybody does it. Come on. And that's what you could hear. Come on. Everybody's doing it. Come on. And then you begin hearing stories of all of this that goes on to campuses. Thank God for campus ministries. Listen to what Paul says though. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? In Corinth, there was male and female prostitutes in the temples, and they could go in, and I could just go into all kinds of bad stuff. But it was right there in the church, just like it is right here in front of us. 
Paul says, never, never should we do that. Look in verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, are you all following me, believer? Are you following me? God's ideal plan was for one man and one woman to unite and become what? One flesh. Anytime we have sexual intercourse with any person outside of our marriage relationship, guess what happens? You become one body with them. One body. Now listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now notice what he says. That's not for the Christian. Here's the, here's the responsibility of the Christian. But he who is joined to the Lord after he's saved becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. You should write down here Genesis 39. And go read the story of Joseph. Joseph, a little Hebrew boy, sold into slavery, promoted into Potiphar's house. Then the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, had a wife who had the hots for a young teen. And she started to sink her chops into Joseph. And Joseph, being the young teenager he was, had the willpower to say no. She lured him up to her room one day. She told him to lay with her and she reached and grabbed him and she pulled his shirt off. Joseph just went ahead and pulled it off and let her have it. And instead of going toward her, he went toward the door. I remember one of my theology professors saying, sometimes the best remedy for sexual temptation is a good pair of shoes. Run! Run! Karen and I were blessed to teach teenagers in Salem Baptist Church in Winston-Salem while I was going through Bible college, and this is what we used to tell them all the time. You better know, young people, what you're going to do before you start dating. Are you going to be pure until you're married or not? And if you are, you better drive a stake in the ground. I will not do this until I am married. I don't care what happens. And if it gets too uncomfortable or too close or too whatever, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And that should be understood up front. Set those principles and boundaries. And I don't care who it is. Don't you cave. Because the minute you do, you have become one flesh with somebody else. And Paul's going to say here, if, I, if I'll just be quiet and get to it. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, a sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Don't tell me that sexual intercourse is just physical. Because Paul says it's spiritual. Now, I don't know what we've believed from the world or the leading psychologist. PhDs, but let me, let me share this. I don't do this arrogantly. You know, sometimes people can be arrogant when they share God's Word. Lord, have mercy on us. It's like the old FBI agent, or uh, I'm sorry, it was a Department of Agriculture agent came into the farmer and 
came over and said, I'm here to inspect your food. I'm from the USDA. The farmer said, inspect my food? What are you inspecting my farm for? He pulled out his badge and said, I am here from the USDA. I am here to inspect your farm. The farmer said, well, okay. So I'm going right over here. And the guy says, no, 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 don't go over there. He said, I am from the USDA. I have a badge. I'll go wherever I want. He stepped across the fence and started walking over toward the field. And the farmer went over to the edge and peered over the gate. A few minutes later, he heard some hollering. Here came a great big old bull chasing this man up toward the fence. And the guy was screaming, ah, ah. And the farmer got up on the fence post and yelled out, Show him your badge! <laughs> Show him your badge! And now, now preachers don't want to just come out and say, no, this is what God says. We don't do that. We're, we're talking to other believers here. But God's Word is authority. Now listen to what he says. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Drunkenness, gluttony, you know, I can go down the list. Eventually, those things will go away. If you, if you get drunken, drunken, if you get drunk, you will sober up. If you eat too much to where it's sin, you may get sick at your stomach, but you'll be hungry again. But listen to this. If you have sexual immorality, relationship with somebody, it'll never leave you. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Now, Paul's going to make an appeal to the believers here and say, this is why, as a Christian, you are to live a different lifestyle than everybody else. Here's why. Verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Inside your body, your flesh, lives the Holy Spirit of God. And He is to control your life. Both your sexual life and outside your sexual life, the Holy Spirit is to have control. Now, that is as far as I'll go in that area. But, He lives inside of us. Paul says, "...is a temple of the Holy Spirit..." within you, who you have from God. And as a result of that, Christian, we're not talking to unsaved people here, he's talking to Christians. You are not your own. You do not have the right to tell yourself what you're going to do. And here's why. Are you ready? If you're really a Christian, because you have been bought with a price. Your body is not yours. It is God's. And you do not have the right to tell your body what to do. God does. So now, as the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and we are His temple, and we are to become what He wants us to be, we are bought with a price, what are we to do in our life? Look in verse 20. So glorify God in your body. What? A powerful section of Scripture, especially in our days. 
Three important things about sexual relations. I'm just going to summarize here. Number one, it's designed to fulfill desires and needs within the bonds of marriage. This is how God designed a man and a woman to have their sexual needs met. That is, one husband and one wife. Anything outside that, folks? Listen, God says it's not right. Okay, this is what God says. We live in a culture where that is ignored. Are you listening to me? Forgotten. Not even brought up. Hear me carefully now, right here in Christiansburg. The unchurched people, by and large, don't even know, don't know and don't care. So, let's make sure we know, and we care, and we share that in love. Because people around us need that. And we can't make them believe it. We can't make them follow it. Don't even try. You're not their authority. God is. I'm not their authority. God is. Second of all, sexual relations should be met by mutual submission. It's not just the man, not just the woman. It's both. And both should have an open relationship with each other about that. And by the way, that is the sign of whether a marriage is healthy or not. Did you know that? That is the sign. It's not the checkbook. It's not the dinner table. It is the sexual relation life. Okay, number three. Unmet or unwilling by either person opens the door for spiritual, let me say this, warfare to overtake and lead to defeat. So now you can never say you've never heard a sermon preached on that because... I told you. And it is true. And people have to deal with this issue. Here are a couple of passages that you can turn to. I alluded to two of them. Uh, Write down that 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. You can read that for your devotions this week. But Paul talks in that chapter about the same thing that I've been talking about. The purpose of our body. Tom Constable writes this. There are legitimate reasons for temporary abstinence, but couples should temporarily abstain only with the agreement of both partners. When there are greater needs, that is, spiritual needs, the couple may want to set aside their normal physical needs. However, they should only do so temporarily. So there it is from the Apostle Paul, how to help your life, your your marriage life, And how to set boundaries as a young person and not violate them. And why going out here living YOLO is wrong. Because you become one flesh and you will never take that mark off. Never. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which instructs us how to live and most importantly, how to glorify and honor you because we have been bought with a price. I pray today for each person here, Father, because I know that everyone who has a human body deals with these struggles. Give us grace, give us wisdom. Give us understanding to know how we should live in such a way that we honor you. And so I pray for maybe marriages today who are struggling. Father, help this man and this woman talk through these issues. Give them grace. I pray for the young person here who's 
struggling greatly with temptation. I pray you'll give them grace to withhold, to not enter into any one flesh relationship until their marriage bond. Help them to remain pure. Give them the strength that they need to do that and their testimony. And so we just pray you'll strengthen marriages and embolden our single people. And for those, Father, maybe who have lost a marriage, a divorce, lost a spouse, they've been married at one time, they know what this is, and now they have to abstain or withhold, I pray that you'll either give them grace for celibacy or that you'll bring the right person into their life, that they may rejoin and remarry again. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, Greg's going to pray. We're going to have a little break. And I quit preaching early, by the way. And here's why. I want to take about four or five minutes and pray for Afghanistan. Um, Franklin Graham sent out something, Billy Graham's son, asking churches to pray for that nation. So we're going to pray for them as soon as Greg finishes his song, and then we'll be dismissed after the prayer, okay? It won't be long, but we want to do that. We'll stand together and sing. Jesus, my Redeemer, there is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. My life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. But I am not forsaken For by my side The Savior He will stay I labor on In weakness and rejoicing For in my need His power is displayed To this I hold My shepherd will defend for my pardon and he was raised 
long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home, and day by day I know he will renew me, until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to reading Franklin Graham's post here and I don't know if you've watched what's going on in Afghanistan it's very very gruesome Uh, sometimes we don't share this you won't hear it on the news networks but there are videos that are being sent out people are just being executed in the streets lined up in lines executed roads are red Women are being taken off the streets for not having the full face covered, put down on their knees and executed because they do not follow this horrific stuff. Don't YouTube it. It'll upset your stomach because they are putting out the propaganda to strike fear in every heart. Here's the problem. There's about 15,000 people who are trying to get out of there and now they have blocked all the entrances to the airports. And when people are trying to get in the airport, they're searching their cars and pulling them out and taking their life or something far worse. So Franklin Graham has asked us to pray because there is no other military presence there except them. And they have a lot of our equipment. They are well stocked. So we need to pray for these people and their testimony and especially the believers. Would anyone here like to come up and pray for the people from Afghanistan? Anyone? Ray, would you like to pray for them? I don't want to put you on the spot. Would you, would you pray for them? Okay. And let's all join with Ray as he prays, please. Stand in the comfort of your church, just enjoying fellowship and peace. We lift up the people of, of Afghanistan to you, knowing the terror and turmoil that is taking place in their country. People being killed simply because they have a Bible app on their phone or because their face isn't completely covered. 
the atrocities that are being committed, Father, we know breaks your heart and it breaks ours as well. Father, we just pray that you would do a mighty work. We don't know how, but we know that you do to bring the people out safely that needs to come out and to Father, just uh, strengthen the believers that are there. Knowing the suffering that they do go through will only be short-lived as we consider this time compared to eternity. Father, in some ways we don't know what to pray or how to pray. We just lift our hearts to you, Father, on their behalf. And we thank you for organizations like Samaritan's Purse and Franklin Graham, who just has a heart for that sort of thing and is just so vocal and outspoken about it. Just continue to encourage him. Father, just help us to keep the people on our hearts and mind. And we'll give you the praise, Father, because we know your grace is there to meet the needs. And we just thank you for your abundant grace. And we thank you for the opportunity to come forward and to pray for the people. And may it just be continually on our minds and hearts, Father. Because we know it's on yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. <laughs>